What is the current temperature? The temperature in Regina right now is minus 34 degrees. Due to current wind conditions, it feels like it's minus 51. What we do on cold nights on episode 392 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who like to go out when it's warmer and do astronomy. But this podcast is for anybody who likes going out under the stars. It's been cold, Shane. Dangerously cold. Yeah, winter finally arrived officially, I guess, uh, this last week here. And yeah, it got very cold very quick. So we are uh, sitting in the minus 30s. And with, with the wind, it's been as cold, I think, as uh, minus 52 or minus 53 here. And it and it varies, and it can vary quite quickly. Um, I, was, I was listening to the radio this morning, and they were talking about how, uh, although it's only minus 34 or minus 35 here, um, just some areas within uh, a couple hundred kilometers of here are, are sometimes hitting minus 45 or minus 46 before the wind. Yeah, yeah, there's some... Colder areas, seemingly isolated, I guess. Uh, it's kind of weird how it, it varies that much, actually, but um, it does. And it's pretty much cold everywhere, I think, in Western Canada right now and maybe even beyond. I haven't looked. Yeah, I, I heard uh, I, some of the places in, in the northern states are getting pretty chilly as well, getting into the uh, negative digits Fahrenheit. But I, I think minus 50 is the same in... Uh, in Fahrenheit as it is in Celsius or within spent distance anyway. Yeah. Once like, a, yeah, there's some, something around, I think the thirties minus thirties is when it equals. And then, it, yeah, it, I would have to do the conversion there, but regardless, it's uh, just exceptionally cold. <laughs> it's so cold. It's so cold. Yeah. So we'll do, we'll do our part. Our, our part is uh, buying gear getting some guests on, talking some astronomy. But uh, it, it's this time of year, Shane, that we rely on a third of our content from listeners who write in with their uh, show ideas, observations, notes, and uh, their gear uh, acquisitions. Uh, we do rely on the listeners for that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have as many shows. Yeah, it definitely helps because we run out of uh, interesting things to talk about because we're not getting much or any observing in on these cold nights. And, and I have to ask simply because this is the one where I do ask, did, did you get any observing in this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, not really. Um, what I did do is play around a little bit with that Borg 90 oh, yeah. FL, but it was really just through the window. And what mm -hmm. I was looking to do was not any serious observing, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand, um, what is the lightest weight mount I can use on my super lightweight tripod okay. and not have too much vibration that would drive me crazy. Right. So I was just, I was using my 30 millimeter, uh, APM UFF eyepiece and pointing it through the window at, uh, some star fields and just tapping the focuser to see how much vibration there was in the dampening time. Um, certainly you could try doing that during the day, but it, it, it like, there's no real test, like looking at points of light stars yeah. at night to really determine if the vibration is acceptable or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I've tried during daytime before and, and you know, daytime, it's almost always that the vibration is non-existent or acceptable. Mm -hmm. you do the same test at night and quickly realize it's vibrating a lot more or the dampening is taking a lot longer uh, than you first realized. 
But um, anyway, what I learned was my little, um, uh, the Getsu or Getsu um, ball, camera ball head that came with the tripod just doesn't handle that telescope very well right now with uh, I'm not surprised yeah it's, a, I'm not it's a small connecting point eh? yeah it is so I used um I have a Borg single arm uh alt as mount that I tried to use and it wasn't too wonderful um the the stellar view m1 mount is quite good mm -hmm. um and then also the um Burlaback Caster 2 that I have, which is like a oh, dual T-mount. That um, should be pretty good. Yeah, it works really well uh, on that lightweight tripod. So I think that's probably the the setup I will use. But, um, you know, that's all I've been really able to do, Chris. Um, you, were you able to do any observing? I looked at the moon through the window for four minutes last night. <laughs> it was yeah. like, yeah, there's the moon. I can say I looked at the sky and saw something. And it was, you know... Not even that clear. It was sort of orangish through uh, the thin cloud or haze or whatever is uh, is up there. I saw some sun dogs in the uh, snow crystals, mm -hmm. uh, you know, driving to and, and from work. Actually, from work because when I drive to work at uh, whatever o'clock in the morning, it's, well, it's dark until nine o'clock. So I'm not going to see any sun dogs in the morning for another month. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't do any astronomy, but I did go to the... Uh, KW RASC astronomy meeting. KW Center is one of the astronomy clubs in Canada here. It's in Kitchener, Waterloo, and I live in Regina, but they have their meetings on Zoom. And they were having bad weather, so the whole thing was on Zoom. So that worked out really well for me. Uh, Michael Wright, he's a listener of ours, and he's also the president of the KW Center. And I used to live in KW in Kitchener, Waterloo. And so I have a, have a connection there and uh, have gotten to know uh, Michael through... Uh, through the podcast and our correspondence there. And he's also a sketcher and much better sketcher than I am. And, uh, anyhow, so we've kind of gone back and forth, um, on a variety of things. And, uh, since I still have lots of friends there, I, I thought I would join the center and, and it's fun to attend the meetings. Uh, one of the reasons why it's nice to attend astronomy meetings, sort of a plug for people. If, if they don't, um, I really think people can learn a lot from astronomy meetings. I've been doing astronomy a long time, Shane. I attend an astronomy meeting and Trevor Chandler, who's their past president, does this talk on asterisms. And lo and behold, he throws an asterism up. He had, he had quite a few, most of the, I mean, I would say like 99% of them I've seen, but he throws uh, one up that I definitely have not seen before, which is the mini coat hanger, which is between Zeta and Epsilon Ursa Minoris. Have you ever seen okay. that one? I've never seen that one. No, I'm not familiar with that. Never heard of it. Um, you know, almost embarrassing to say, I guess it's, it's up all the time because it's, uh, within, I think, uh, five or six degrees of Polaris, the North star. So it's always high in our horizon here and, uh, looks like a mini coat hanger. And, uh, and then he talked the one, I, I think I have heard of this one. I didn't hear of it as the hockey stick, uh, just North of Pegasus in Andromeda, but it's formed out of Omicron Kappa Lambda and a few other stars right by the loose snowball planetary nebula. I, I think I had heard of that one before. I just had it under something else, but the mini coat hanger, that one, absolutely hundred percent new target for me. And I really like targets like that because uh, if I do get out observing, um, it might be binoculars only, like it might be too cold to bother setting up a telescope. Hey, so just mm -hmm. go out with the binoculars and do quick sessions, uh, sometimes in these colder evenings. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 
that's pretty much all that you can do when it's this cold. Um, like focusers, everything will just stop working when it's this cold. Um, like even alt as mounts won't, won't function properly. Yeah. So you really do need to kind of evolve with the weather if you want to do any kind of, uh, astronomy outdoors. Yeah. My Takahashi Lapidus alt as works really well down to about minus 15. It will work down to minus 20. But any colder, I think what happens is that when I when I observe, and I'm always a little bit worried about like damaging it, which I fortunately never done yet. But there's a clutch for the altitude, mm-hmm. and that will get stuck out of round after my first few observations, and so then it just it's hard to get it to move because it's sort of almost stuck in a locked position. But mm. there's like. You know, and I thought about taking it apart and getting it packed with uh, skidoo grease, but I I don't know. I It just seems, you know, really maybe I can get by without observing when it's colder than minus 20, I think is the way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, uh, just still, I got to look back at uh, some dew strips and that sort of thing. Had a couple emails from people on the dew strips Uh uh, but, uh, Leonid, he wrote us an email first, Shane, um, maybe I'll just get you to, uh, to read that and then I'll read the do strip ones. Sure. So Leonid said, excuse me. Hi, Chris and Shane, uh, loved your podcast. Uh, congratulations on the ongoing work on your observatory and Shane on your new Borg. Ah, uh, astronomy. It's been crazy here. More clouds and damp, cold humidity for the last month or so. Uh, all things being equal, I have a leaning towards Newtonians more than towards refractors these days for a variety of reasons. One being economic. The other for me is the process of collimating my daub. There's something mystical in this process for me, which I enjoy. Uh, cool down time in my part of the world is long, regardless of which telescope I use. And I have grown to accept that. I think that I've reached an agreement with the love of my life, but the things are always fickle, uh, as astronomy is for some reason, or is for some of us, a process of, uh, gradual acquisition. Uh, I think most of us, Chris, you know, most you and I have a lot of gear, but we didn't start with this much gear no. and it's been sort of a buildup over years and really decades, I guess now. Yes. Uh, but continuing on with the email, uh, Leonid says, as you know, I've acquired a new focuser for my 203 millimeter daub, uh, which has made my observing sessions a lot more enjoyable. Now I need your advice if you can offer it. I have negotiated the acquisition of a replacement spider for my daub, but at the same time, I would love to get my last telescope, uh, a 130 millimeter Skywatcher heritage, heritage daub, which for me would replace the idea of having a four inch refractor at 370 Canadian dollars. It's practically the same price as importing the new secondary spider. Do I bring this up with my love or just get the spider? Uh, depending on the four inch refractor, let's assume Apple, uh, I'm looking at saving between 1200 to $5,000, uh, which for me is a lot. And realistically I don't have, uh, I think that's a lot for anybody. Yeah. Um, that being said, I do enjoy the views offered by Newtonians. Uh, I like them spikes around bright stars. I enjoy collimating and this particular telescope would fit perfectly in with my mount and tripod, all things being equal. Uh, I have also decided that eventually, uh, to accommodate this and my existing telescope that I would get a high power Nagler and a 19 millimeter panoptic. 
as for now, as I for now have no issues viewing without glasses. These eyes, these eyepieces are also relatively light. What do I do? Um, eventually I will start working night shift with Canada Post. So theoretically economics will get easier. Chris, I've also acquired two drawing notebooks and because of no skies and procrastination, I have not yet started sketching at the eyepiece. Are they similar to the ones that you got yourself? Uh, anyway, you guys are an inspiration for me. Keep up the good work. Clear skies. Um, so anyway, first question, I guess, Chris, what does he do? Does he get the heritage daub or does he get the spider veins? I feel like we should have like those audiences in the background, like prices, right? Kind of thing. Um, no, I think get, get the heritage Newtonian. I mean, it sounds like he's already made a good argument for that, for himself, that that's the telescope that's going to. Uh, work both for his observing and economics. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not one to say that someone should go out and spend thousands of dollars on anything. I mean, you really don't need to spend hardly any money to do astronomy. Kind of like that's, that's one of the strange things where in a way astronomy is totally free. There's no real fee that you have to spend every time you go out and do it. Like depending, like, uh, it's just your time investment. So you know, just get what, uh, is, is going to work. And I think those heritage jobs are, uh, reasonably good. And also the other thing to keep in mind for us and, and for people that are listening to this is Leonid is, um, somebody who is a very handy person. I think he was a carpenter in a past, uh, trade and has created some beautiful things. So here's somebody who is, uh, going to very easily get culmination, uh, perfectly and down to a science in a new telescope very quickly. So, uh, that is not even a factor for, for somebody like Leonid. He is just somebody who is very, um, inclined to, uh, to learn that sort of process and to be able to nail it with a new scope. Uh, I, I remember he sent some photos of that tripod. Not sure if you remember that Shane, but he's built some beautiful mm, tripods yes. and, yeah. and, and some other stuff that he sent us. Uh, he's, uh, a very creative and uh, resourceful person. So, um, I always think people like that, yeah, go for it, get the little, um, reflector and then modify it because he's somebody that, uh, that can kind of take a small piece of gear, um, and an affordable piece of gear and really turn into a high performance piece of equipment. So for him, that's a perfect choice, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense for sure. And thoughts? you know, he even alluded to, uh, like the, the reason for getting the spider veins is, is really aesthetics. Like if you, if you are observing using a Newtonian and you're looking at a bright star, you'll notice the diffraction spikes. It's like a big plus sign kind of going through the bright star. Uh, some people like those and are not bothered by them. Some people are very bothered by them. So if you are bothered, then you get these spider veins and, and they're curved and it basically gets rid of that diffraction spike. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that's what he's referring to here. And, you know, he says that he likes the spikes around bright stars. So I would say, yeah, get the, uh, get the heritage daub and, and, uh, you know, certain, it just gives you another, uh, tool in the shed there that, you know, probably hopefully would increase, uh, observing because it's probably a little easier to get the smaller daub out and, and, uh, underneath the stars. Then he was also asking about the, uh, sketchbooks. And he sent me his sketchbooks. They're, they're not, they're really nice sketchbooks. First of all, hardcover spiral bound. 
and uh, really nice paper. I looked them up. Um, these are like awesome sketchbooks, um, whether you're just getting started or you've been doing it for a long time. So I would say like definitely use those. It's uh, white paper or whitish paper. And so you're going to be using graphite on those. Um, I've kind of more or less totally switched over to black paper and white ink and chalk. And that's just, you know, where, where I've gone with it. But I think getting started just simply because we're more familiar with putting graphite pencil on white paper, just we, we all have this experience all, already coming into this. I think that's probably the best way to start. Now, everybody is different. Some people definitely have more um, of an artistic background than I do. And again, everybody is different in how they want to approach it and uh, and just the aesthetics of it, um, you know, and how you're, how you're looking to represent things. But I would say if that's what you've bought, Lynette, uh, then just just use what you have there and you know get uh, a few good sketching pencils and you're off to the races uh, and just uh, when you get through those then maybe you can decide if if you want to try the uh, the white ink on on the black paper um, but for me anyway Shane like I sketched graphite on white paper from 2015 to 2022 mid 2022. And when I went to white ink on black paper, it was, for me, it was almost just like starting over again completely. Oh, really? Yeah. It, the first sketches were just absolutely, my first sketchbook was so bad. Um, I don't think I threw it out, but if I threw it out, it would be almost no loss just because the sketches were so terrible. I just <laughs> found it because it's. Because when you draw, we're all used to doing this often. We don't we don't think about it that much. But when you typically when you draw, especially for astronomy stuff, typically when you draw with uh, the graphite on the white paper, you're drawing in negative. And we all just do this like naturally. This is just how it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you're not doing you're doing the opposite with the uh, with the white on black. It's like a true direct uh, aesthetic representation. And and for me anyway, I. I yeah, it was, there was a big learning curve, a really big learning curve for me to, to switch to that. But I like the results. Um, but it took me about a year to start to really be happy with the way the images were coming off. And only this fall when I kind of, we got back into good weather and I was able to sketch like three or four nights a week, you know, three or three to six sketches a night. It was only after doing that for like months that I kind of started feeling like, okay, it's, I'm I'm kind of getting there with it, but uh, yeah, that's my little story. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, so thanks for that, Leonid. Uh, house cleanup. I've been cleaning up the house, Shane. It's a bit of a mess around here. Um, haven't done a really, really big clean in probably too long, but I've been finding some things, some pretty interesting stuff, actually. I found a set of astronomy stamps, like from, speaking of Canada Post, from Canada Post, they're um, one of those proof sets, you know, with like a little description and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're from 2018. I can't, I got them at the GA one way or another when I went to the Calgary GA in 2018. Um, I, I, other than that, I can't remember how I came about to have these. Um, they're signed by the astrophotographers. One is Alan, Alan Dyer. And mm. uh, I thought that was really neat. And then I'd forgotten when I was in, I was at Cape Canaveral back in 2015 
and I bought um, a mission patch with Mark Garneau, of course, who's the first Canadian in space. And I, when I was a small child at that time, when he went to space, I knew Mark Garneau um, because he lived around the corner, like literally um, five houses down from my grandmother. And so I got to know him before he went to space and, and when he went into space. And so that was kind of cool to find. What else did I find? All kinds of little treasures. This one was kind of the most surprising treasure. I actually found a pretty good eyepiece that I'd forgotten I bought. Oh, really? Okay. I I bought this. It was on sale. Like it was, there was a telescope store that was going out of business. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. I bought a whole pile of stuff from them. And uh, this is for public outreach, but it's a pretty good little public outreach eyepiece. It's a six millimeter, one of those super long eye relief, 66 degree wide fields. Mm, okay. Yeah. That's a... Yeah. Uh pretty high powered eyepiece. Yeah. I just thought for looking at planets to the scopes when I'm doing yeah. public outreach, I, you know, often was using, um, various eyepieces, um, that weren't quite working. And when I saw that one, I was like, oh, this will give a really nice power in my telescopes, um, for the public. And, uh, yeah, I, I bought that just basically for public observing and then promptly forgot about it. Cause it's just been sitting in the box. I, I thought the box was empty and it was on a shelf sort of in the back and I reached in and, and I was like, this box has an eyepiece in it. I know because it weighs like, you know, five or six ounces, right? And there we go. Found I found an eyepiece. I don't know whether I should be telling this story or not. It's a little bit embarrassing that I bought a pretty good, decent eyepiece to actually use in a variety of situations and uh, forgot about it. Hmm. Well, it happens. <laughs> Phil M, not Phil from the UK, but Phil M wrote, I don't think I did a very good job of explaining some of my stuff in that podcast. Um, he goes on to say, uh, just a note to say that instead of scrapping Conte crayons to make dust for astro sketching, it might be easier to get a consistent size dust by rubbing the crayon on uh, 220 grit sandpaper to keep it neat. And uh, you could get an Altoids tin, cover the bottom with a piece of sandpaper held in place with uh, blue tack and uh, keep the tin closed with plastic just in case. Cheers and clear skies fill. That's a really good idea. In fact, um, maybe I just didn't mention it, but what I had ended up doing, I think even before we recorded that show, Phil, was when I was at the art store, I ended up buying just the Conti uh, chalk, not in crayon or not in like a colored pencil. Like typically you're buying, it's like a colored pencil, but it's white and chalky but what i was finding is that the uh, chalk itself was just breaking so even when i was trying to make the chalk using the the crayon it was just breaking and then i would have to sharpen it down it was just a really laborious process just to get some dust oh, i wasn't even sketching i'm not even sketching with the conti uh, crayons themselves so what i did is i just bought only the chalk it comes in these little square strips that are about i guess about three inches long or something like that and when I was at the art store, I mentioned the fact that I, I was just going to go and try to buy an Altoids tin somewhere, but I have a lot of eating restrictions and I don't think I can have Altoids, Shane. I don't know, but probably not, eh? You know me. Mm -hmm. And so, so I said that to, to the person there and she said, oh, well, I'll sell you one of the little tins we give away with our painting kits. And afterwards, after I'd spent about another $40 plus a few things, I was like, why don't you just give that to me? Because I bought more than what those painting kits were. But anyway, so I did buy an Altoids type of tin and, uh, I like the idea of putting 
something in the bottom to kind of make my chalk against. I hadn't thought of that. I was just gonna, I was just gonna grit the uh, the chalk into the tin, and I was thinking that's gonna make a bit of a mess. So I'm definitely gonna use uh, this technique that uh, that Phil has suggested. I really appreciate that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Another one of those quality of life things that doesn't really cost anything yeah. or very little very and little. Uh, just helps you enjoy your observing session a bit better. Yeah. And what, what was happening is I was using the crayons. They're not really crayons. It's like, it's really hard to describe, but basically it's just like a pencil with a chalk lead in it. And what I was doing, Shane, is I was scratching a lot of the chalk off at the top of my um, page that I was going to sketch on. And this just starts to create not like a huge mess but this is messy mm -hmm. it, it, this is just a messy thing so i needed to i need to kind of up that and then i was having to do quite a bit because you're not really creating like a repository and it just it can kind of blow off and it kind of thins out and in the cold and blah 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 so i think this this is a good technique that i'm gonna try to give a shot but i think the other thing i'm gonna do is and um and try to go and buy this is I'm going to buy like a, a white ink well and I'm going to experiment with just using like raw ink. I'm going to, I'm going to see how this works. We'll uh, stay tuned for updates in the future of how messy that becomes, but maybe, maybe this is a bad idea. I don't know, but I, I was thinking just going to raw ink and then just basically an Altoids tin full of chalk and then using various tools to put that down. I feel like I'm not even sure if this is sketchy anymore. I may have departed into simply uh, painting in chalk and ink, but uh, that's where I'm going, I think. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So again, kind of looping back to that email from Leonid, um, stick to the charcoal, uh, sorry, the graphite and paper, and then get used to sketching before you start dabbling in any of this other weird and wacky stuff, because I'm not even sure it's sketching anymore. It's more like painting, I guess. All right. Um, Jim sent me a note on dew strips. This was pretty good advice, Shane. Um, so you recall last week I was talking about getting some dew strips. I was looking at the Kendrick ones and, and trying to figure out they were a little bit more expensive than I thought. Um, but getting dew strips for my various telescopes and finders and eyepieces and that sort of thing. I don't know if you recall that or not. Uh, yes, yes, I do. So so Jim wrote and suggested looking at the Sivbany, which is the uh, kind of like the ubiquitous discount dealer of all sorts of different astronomical items. Um, some are pretty good, I think, by reports, some not as good. They do make some dew heaters. Um, the images didn't come across, but they make dew heaters in 10, uh, 12, and 16-inch strips. And... Um, and then you can get a, a battery cell uh, and these plug in via USB. And then they're either, I think, on, off, on high and low, maybe a medium setting or something like that. And they're, they're a little bit, actually a fair deal bit more affordable. Not sure if you've seen these before. I, I had not seen these. I'm sort of new to the um, dew heating world, but... Uh, they look like a pretty good inexpensive solution. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about dew heaters. I've never looked into it. So, you know, other than 
like kind of a controller that goes to a power source and then, you know, the actual strips, I, I don't know much about them. Yeah. And this is all new to me too. So kind of part of the podcast is the learning of stuff as, as we're going through it. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what I'm doing uh, here. Um, I think this would have been the solution that I would use um, before I had my observatory. I think mm. this, this is a really good solution. There's a couple reasons why I'm not going to go with this suggestion um, from Jim, which I do really appreciate. Um, but I think each of them is like individually controlled. And as well, I, I'm just a little bit concerned about the quality. Like I, I don't want like a do strip and I don't even know if this is possible, but if something went wrong, like just because I decided to go for the least expensive, um, solution, see, I will leave my observatory when I'm observing, like I might go down to get warm or get a coffee or have dinner or something. And, uh, which typically I wouldn't have done before. Like if we were just out observing somewhere, I threw dew strips on and then we're observing if, if I noticed it was getting hot or something, uh, I could whip it off. Like I might go down and go inside and eat for an hour or two, right? <laughs> I might be gone for an hour or two because my observatory is right there. And it, I, I don't know, I'd be a little bit concerned maybe that something went wrong or it just didn't work or anyway. Um, so I think I'm going to go with, uh, a slightly different, uh, different solution there. So, uh, Jim went on to say that, uh, he uses the battery pack to run his AZ GTI and, uh, the fan on his 10 inch daub and, uh, very, very useful. Yeah. I've got a battery pack as well and they're certainly handy. I certainly, uh, don't, uh, don't regret getting that. And he says that, uh, yeah, they have three levels for the do control. And so there's no standalone, uh, box that you need. I kind of want to have the ability to control them all from one spot. Um, that's more like for the reasons of going to the observatory. Like I have the facility to kind of put more into it. So yeah. Thanks for that, Jim though. Really appreciate it. Um, a couple weeks back, oh, we had this email from JT. Um, do you just want, it's just a very short one. Do you just want to read it there, Shane? Sure. Yeah. Uh, he said, I wanted to share with you this photo I took on Wednesday, January 3rd of Jupiter and its bands. I have been trying for a while and finally got some detail of the disc, had to sacrifice the moons for it, but all in all, it was worth it to see that pale blue disc and them weather bands. Anyway, I just wanted to share my small victory with you. Thanks again for everything you do. Wishing you clear skies from your friend JT in Arkansas. Yeah, appreciate that JT. Really neat to see that image, eh? Yeah, it was a really nice image. I, uh, I appreciate, uh, him sending it over. Thank you. Yeah, I kind of messed up. I did have one more. This is uh, not super long, but Ernie Jacobs uh, sent an email here. I'm going to drop it into our show notes, Shane. So um, Ernie also had some suggestions on dew and frost heaters. And I appreciate this because I'm totally new to to all this and I'm sure I'm not doing it exactly right. It's, it's a bit of a learning curve. I really thought the way this worked, Shane, is that um, I could buy some dew heaters, I could buy a little controller and I could buy like a 12 or 12.4 volt plug with a cigarette adapter. And I thought that's what I needed, but uh, there's a little bit more to it than that. So anyway, um, Ernie goes on to say, I've been listening to recent episodes regarding the concerns over dew frost, Chris's observatory and offering a few comments, uh, take them in the spirit offered 
trying to be helpful. So I do really appreciate this. I think if I was in the States, this might be the solution I would go with. Ernie goes on to say, uh, I live in Buffalo, New York with Lake Erie to our west. And I hear that Buffalo is like just about the snowiest place in North America sometimes. So Yeah, they're getting hammered as we speak, I think, with a, a pretty big blizzard. And I and that's not uncommon there. Like I remember mm -hmm. when I lived in Ontario, it was always like we could be totally clear in Kitchener Waterloo and then somebody would drive down to go to a sporting event or a concert or something and come back with this harrowing story of driving through a blizzard. And you'd be like, What are you talking about? We just had like snow flurries here kind of thing. But it is like one of the snowiest places. Anyway, um, he goes on to say with Lake Erie to our West, dealing with defrost is a necessity. So um I would say that Ernie probably is a pretty good expert on dew control mm -hmm. he says number one i fully recommend dew strips for your main scope guide finder kendrick is a reputable manufacturer however there may be some more cost effective solutions i've used do not it's dew not products since 2020 on my imaging rig and have had good luck there are other brands to shop around this technology isn't rocket science Note, I use a Pegasus PowerBox Advance as my controller and USB cable management. Probably too much for your needs. Also note, if the forecast support it, I image all night. So I, I kind of feel like with that, where he's coming from, like in that region, and here's somebody who's imaging all night and leaving the gear out because he says the next morning I wake up and put everything away. In four years of imaging, I have never had dew or frost on the lens of either my imaging guide scope um, with the use of these dew heaters. So I kind of feel like this is a pretty solid recommendation. If the, if the mount or other stuff is excessively covered, I might wipe it down before putting them away. And most of the time, uh, quickly warms up during the day and stores all the stuff in an unheated uh, shed. Obviously, if a lens mirror surface have any dew that is dealt with with a hairdryer before putting it away, um, this is the only issue with visual equipment as my visual stuff doesn't have any dew heaters and he's been doing uh, visual for 20 plus years. So then he goes on to say, recommendation number two, have you thought of just putting a hairdryer in the observatory? If something is doing up while you're using it, just hit the hairdryer. Um, I use one all the time when visual observing. Very good recommendation. Uh, regarding using a heater or a strip for eyepieces, I cover my eyepieces when not in use with a towel used only for that purposes. I just lay the towel over my open case and easily uh, access eyepieces when needed. If the, uh, oops, if the do, if they do well in use, a quick shot with the hairdryer does the trick. Hope my comments are helpful as you consider your options. Regards, Ernie. So, uh, yeah, this is a very appreciated. Thanks so much, Ernie, for your detailed and well thought out. Um, I took a look at the do not stuff and I was really excited at first because they are a little less here in Canada than the Kendrick do strips. However, the controller boxes are equally more. So it's, it's a little bit of a wash. So mm -hmm. it may just depend on the shipping at this point. I think they're they're essentially the same price. And I'm guessing that, uh, I don't know, maybe they figured that out. Um, but I think because here in Canada, they have to come over the border and everything. It must be one of those things where they get dinged on duty. And so it just gets passed along to the product. It might be cheaper, but it's um, almost a wash. And uh, maybe I should also note that I have bought stuff from Kendrick um, in the past over the years and they, uh, did sponsor, 
an event that I was in charge of getting sponsorship for a few times. So I always feel like I kind of got a side with them where, where possible. So if it does come down to the fact of, um, I think in this case with the Pegasus stuff and the do not, it was only like within, I don't know, 20 or 30 bucks difference once I factored it all in. So I might just go with the Kendrick. Cool. What do you think about the hairdryer for visual observing, Shane? I, that my only concern with the hairdryer is is that it might get too hot and uh, bake on some grime. That would be my only concern with that one. Well, I, yeah, like I don't think you would blow it right onto the the lens. I think you'd just do it to the, like kind of the OTA or the lens cell. Mm-hmm. Or am I wrong on that? I don't, I don't know. I've seen people do it a variety of ways. I remember mm. we had a... I haven't seen these, though. I haven't looked too uh, too hard for them. Is uh, at our observatory in in Halifax when I was a Halifax member there, we had a a dew heater hair dryer, or they had a couple of them, and you could buy a hair dryer type thing that you would just plug in and use, mm-hmm. um, just like a hair dryer. And uh, but it was it had like a safety setting for the heat. And it was just, it was just for uh, removing dew, not for uh, like doing your hair or anything like that, Shane. Although I, I don't use a hair dryer on my hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it did work well. I suppose the only thing is, and, and this is the thing that I've been finding in the observatories. One, when, when I am just out visual observing with, uh, with my gear, you know, over the years outside the observatory, it didn't frost up as much because you're exposed in the wind and there's two things. One, uh, Shane, when you're exposed to the wind, you just can't observe for four or five hours. Your, your gear just didn't set up that long usually. Yeah. That, that wind just takes the heat right out of you. It, uh, it can be tough to deal with. And that wind also prevents the, uh, frost and dew and such from forming. So even if you did like leave, even when I have left my gear out, it just hasn't accumulated that much frost or or dew. But being in the observatory, one, it's definitely out a lot longer. And then two, um, the uh, the dew inhibiting or frost inhibiting wind is not present. So it just it just really collects much more than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. Is what it uh, what it boils down to. Um, so I think I would just be running the hairdryer a lot more, and I think that would just get. I don't think I would be totally solving the problem. It, you know, might be fine in the summer, but right now the way it's been, yeah, it's just it's not been good. So I I think I'm just going to go with the the dew control systems. And the other thing is I do want to observe quite uh, quite a bit. But yeah, even in Ontario, I just used a longer dew shield and and some towels and old shirts and stuff, and I could get by. But um, with this frost, the way that it's been, it's just been. I, I've never had it that bad with the frost. It's been just crazy. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think for your setup, it makes a lot of sense to figure out a proper do solution and yeah. get it implemented and then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. I think that's probably what I'm going to do. I kind of got to sit down. Um, and again, part of the complication is when, uh, when I wrote Kendrick last weekend, I wrote them and I didn't think I'd hear back from them and it's, it's been a busy week. But they wrote back and even like the reply was very detailed and I appreciate that. But it's it, this is a whole new thing to me. So I really got to sit down and kind of chew on it and look at some options and that. And again, the other thing was um, I thought this was going to be into like 
I don't know, maybe like the three or $400 range shipped to the door. And it's about twice that. So mm -hmm. I was kind of like a little bit in sticker shock over it. So I kind of wanted to give it some serious thought. Um, you know, yeah, when you're prepared to spend a few hundred bucks, that's one thing. But when it it's creeping up to close to $1,000, um, that's like a completely different kettle of fish. Eh? Yeah, yeah, that changes it a bit. I think one of the other things with the uh, do not and with the Sibony is that I think it was something like there was one less controller. It was more difficult to add in another controller, at least from what I gathered, than what I need or want. Because I want it, if I'm going to do it, <laughs> no pun intended, um, I want to put it on the finder eyepieces and the main scope. And then I also have my secondary scope, right? Okay. So I want to run four at the same time. Mm. And uh, typically on the secondary scope, uh, assuming it's properly aligned and such, it'll be capped on the eyepiece lens. So I'm not as worried about that. But uh, yeah, I think I need to run four. So anyway, that's my thoughts today. That's where I'm going. Um, yeah, I think we went a little bit longer. Sorry about that, Shane. Anything to add to the show before we finish up? No, that is all, Chris. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please subscribe. Share the show with other stargazers you know. Send, send, send in your show ideas, observations, questions, and gear stuff in particular while we're in these cold months to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>